0: and that's what climate change is about it is literally not figuratively a clear and present danger
1: we are in the beginning of a
2: mass extinction the ability of co2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point
0: the price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity
2: that's not how you power a modern industrial system the ultimate goal is
1: of this renewable energy, you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're
2: at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down.
3: They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to, like, 1910. Today is Friday.
0: It is indeed Friday, and welcome to the 50th version a Climate Change Roundtable. I'm your host, Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute. And with us today is our usual panel. We have uh, Linnea Lucan, who is one of our most fantastic writers and uh, researchers, and Dr. Sterling Burnett, who is uh, in charge of the Robinson Center for the Heartland Institute. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, and thank you all for those of you that are watching us on live stream. We appreciate you joining us every Friday. And uh, we look forward to having your questions posted up in comments. And hopefully we can get to them later. So feel free to post up those questions as soon as you think of them. Today we're going to cover an ugly, ugly topic. And it's something I've been dealing with and I know uh, our panel has been dealing with for years. And that's climate incorporated. Climate incorporated is big money. And despite the fact that climate skeptics are usually tried, they, they try to label climate skeptics as being in the employ of big oil because apparently we're not intelligent enough to have our own opinions. They ha- We have to be paid to have an opinion, which is absolutely false. And I want to say, for the record, I have never taken a dime from big oil in any way, shape or form. And it just been ridiculous the way this stuff is shaped up and the way that that climate skeptics are ostracized in the media and in, uh, in uh, social uh, linkage and all that sort of stuff. It's just really sad. So one of the things uh, I want to get to before we get into that is what we've done this week to counter this kind of stuff. We put together a book. Uh, Sterling and I were uh, co-authors on this book, and um, we shipped this week eight, thousand copies of climate at a glance to thousands of teachers across america and guess what we're already getting some fantastic feedback this morning from teachers uh, that have been thankful to receive the book And, and we've even asked they had some ads for requests for more 60 copies in one case so it's the word's getting out and this is factually based information here in this release that we're sending out. This is all of the different topics that are the hot topics in climate, where we go through and factually refute what the the belief system is around these and what the uh, narrative is in the media. And they're concise bullet points, and they're all factually referenced to government science agencies such as NASA and NOAA, as well as peer-reviewed literature. These are factual things. And... For a lot of people that have been believing things like, all the polar bears are dying and the uh, Antarctica is melting and all this other stuff, when you read this and see that it's factually referenced, you're going to be surprised. So look for this if you're a teacher to show up in your mailbox. And if you don't see one, uh, feel free to go to climateataglance.com and you can download a free copy as a PDF and use it in your curriculum. We also have a slideshow that you can download from there. So. Feel free to just browse that and use any of the graphics or any of the content that you wish in your presentations. We make this available for teaching for you. So let's talk about the ugly side of this again. Uh, First thing I want to do is go to Al Gore. You know, Al Gore is the most famous climate alarmist on the planet. And just a couple of weeks ago at the uh, the COP conference, he blurted out that the oceans are going to boil and all sorts of other ridiculous rhetoric. But he's stuck in a kind of a loop. And I wanna play this clip that Sterling found for us that talks about the mindset of what he's got and how Al Gore seems to think that it's impossible to get things across. Let's see it. Change is necessary. and. In- The financing of campaigns. Uh, A famous journalist in the US uh, over a century ago, Upton Sinclair, wrote uh, uh, it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends upon him not understanding it. And if you substitute uh, campaign finance for uh, salary, you get part of the answer. But I know for a fact that there are many Republican members of the Senate and House who know that what they've been advocating is wrong Mm -hmm. and would like to crawl back from the end of the limb they've put themselves on. So that's his opinion, right? Sterling, what do you think about that?
2: Well, he's basically saying that if you disagree with him (laughs) in particular, but with the climate alarm narrative in general, uh, that there's only one legitimate reason for it, and that's you're bought and paid for. Um, Lord knows, I wish all the years I've been accused of being bought and paid for, I was actually raking in that that big well of money. Uh, uh, not not the case. Uh, but um, the problem is, it, once again, it's, it's Al Gore being the pot calling the kettle black here's a man who's made more money off the climate alarm scare than possibly anybody else in history. He, uh, he gins up the scare. He sets up a sustainable development fund. Uh, he makes millions off that because his, the companies in his fund are are getting government subsidies and the government's hyping the scare. He starts a, a television company and then he sells it once again for hundreds of millions, uh, to a company, to, to, uh, what the UAE uh, Al Jazeera which is funded by oil <laughs> so he's the biggest profiteer of all uh and, but he's profiting not off uh the oil per se but the fear that he is generating he he's he's like um uh, uh some guy selling gold on inflation fears out there every day telling you the market's about to crash the market's about to crash you better buy gold buy gold now well he's buying yeah. Climate uh, by climate uh, uh, alarm now by climate alarm now you can profit and he's done Uh handsomely.
0: I liken it to being a preacher that's trying to put the fear of hell into you. You know, if you don't repent now, you know you're going to go to hell. Literally, that's the kind of uh, future that they predict for us. You know, a hellish hot future. But Um, except
2: except, to be fair to preachers, they don't typically directly profit from the hair the the hell mongering. you know maybe they get a few more people in the in the pews and a, a little bit more donations in the in the tin but he's directly profiting from this fear.
0: Right. Linnea what's been your experience with being accused of being in the pocket of big oil?
3: Well <laughs> I I worked I, before I came to Heartland I worked for big oil for a minute. So I did I did profit a little bit off of big oil but my experience in big oil is that they are all in on the climate alarmist narrative themselves. And what I've pointed out to people is that you think that you're fighting big oil by getting big offshore wind installations put in and, um, all sorts of big solar installations, but some of the biggest players in those renewables are also the big oil companies, BP, Exxon, Chevron, not to quite the same degree as BP for Chevron, but, um, shell they all play the same game so you're really not fighting big oil you're actually probably getting money from big oil um, if you are in the renewables game so i don't know it's uh you know it's an integrated and complex kind of corporatist structure and um the only people who are really losing are the small mom and pop oil companies that can't keep up with the regulation um, which is, again, good for the big companies because they can afford to pay for it. Uh, the rest of them can't.
0: Yeah, and, and it's it's crazy. You know, they're, they're calling the kettle black, you know, the pot calling the kettle black, but they're the ones on the other side that have the most money. I mean, just for example, last year, Stanford University got a $1.1 billion grant from someone who was exceptionally rich and had money to burn. And that was to form a climate change center. Now, we're up against this every day. And I wanted to show you this quote from Edward Snowden. And you may remember, he released a lot of very secret files that showed what the government was actually doing behind the scenes. And he said, people don't realize how hard it is to speak the truth to a world full of people that don't realize they are living a lie. And that's really what we've got going on with climate change and climate alarmism, particularly people like Al Gore, who say that the oceans are going to boil, they are living a lie and trying to get truth to counter that narrative is next to impossible because the mainstream media and corporate media are in on the big lie. They're in on the, you know, we've got to spend money on renewables. We've got to save the planet. There's all this noble cause corruption going on where they think what they're doing is right. And as a result, we end up looking like you know, we get squished. We get under the thumb of people when this kind of stuff happens. And that makes it really difficult to get the truth out there.
2: Gore and the people at Davos and uh, DiCaprio and people like that, they have bullhorns and we can't even afford a soapbox, you know. Um,
0: yeah. They, yeah.
2: They've got they've got the, the, the auditorium loudspeaker and uh, we actually have muffles over our mouths. So yep. uh, it's, it's not... Uh, they they seem to think it's David versus Goliath with them being David, but just the opposite is the case. I mean, they portray it that way, right? Oh, well, if it wasn't for all these corporations, big oil and funding climate alarm, we get our message. I, come on. L- last year, last year, the Associated Press touted, actually put out a press release saying, oh, we're getting millions of dollars from four climate alarm foundations to cover more climate alarm. Uh, they they put out a press release announcing they were getting this money to hire reporters specifically to cover climate alarm. Uh, and we uh, at Heartland and not just Heartland, but our colleagues all told get a fraction of that, uh, not just in any one year to talk about climate change, but punitively throughout our existence to talk about climate change. And we are the ones that uh, our opinions are, uh, are are up for
0: sale i mean just look at this broadcast for example compare that to what al gore does you know when he does his broadcast he's got a set he's got production he's got fantastic lighting you know all this stuff he's got you know makeup artists we've got sterling in his basement linnea in his <laughs> library and i'm at a hotel i, I
2: resent know, that i mean obviously
0: loft. we're in the employ of big oil right you know we've yeah, got that but... big oil money producing this yeah It's just ridiculous. So this week, an article showed up that is one of the most disgusting, nefarious, ugly articles I've seen in a long time. And it's by this guy, Roland Lloyd Perry, who I've never heard of. And basically, he's saying politics, cash and fame are what motivate climate change deniers. Well, I want to tell you guys, in no uncertain terms, it's never been about cash. It's never been about fame. I was a television meteorologist for years. If I wanted fame, I could have stayed in that business and moved up the ladder. What motivates me is truth. And there is a lot of lies going on on the climate change agenda, a lot of falsehoods, a lot of bad science. And this bothered me. It bothered me to the point of I wanted to get involved and start telling the truth. And I've done that through my surface station project by uh, publications through Heartland and so forth. Linnea and Sterling have done exactly the same thing. But it just it's its incredible to me that this projection has to go on from these folks to justify their own actions. It just, uh, it's just amazing. Well, Linnea you know, or Sterling, what do you think?
2: No, go ahead. Go to, Linnea. go to Linnea.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, when I saw this article, I was, I mean, you're not surprised seeing something like this. But it's such a hack job, and uh, I think that you have some good uh, points to bring up in terms of the ethics of writing something like this, because um, they interviewed some, I guess, psychologists for it uh, to try to, like, diagnose specifically Anthony and uh, generally people in the, I guess, denier camp as, uh, like, malignant narcissists, I think is the word they used, Um which is really interesting. I, it's almost flattering though that they kind of build us up to a huge boogeyman, when mm-hmm. there's like a quarter, maybe a tenth as many of us as there are of those people. Maybe even not even that. Maybe you know one percent, two percent of the people having this conversation in a serious, science-driven way are you know skeptics um, of the alarmist narrative. Anyway. And, and even that is just to degrees, right? Because we have our, you know, lukewarmers and everything in between. It's um, – so the way – the the level of buildup that they give to us really makes me think that there there really is something to the position that we hold. Sure. Because they would not – if we were just kooks, they wouldn't have to write, like, detailed articles talking about how we're, like, a threat. Um, so they they really – we keep them on their toes, and that's a good thing. I,
2: you know, now mm-hmm. Linnea, Linnea just made a great point. Um, if if we weren't having an impact, an outsized impact, I suspect, um, they wouldn't bother with us. If if um, you know, you don't hear them debating people about the flat Earth. Um, it's it's uh, um, you know, or whether the earth or the sun, which one's the center of the universe. You don't see those debates. You don't see them squashing people who would believe opposite what the truth is. So uh, I think we are having an impact, but you know, what, what bothered me about the article, I'm interviewed a lot uh, on radio, uh, less so on television, but sometimes on television, print, and sometimes I'm asked about things that are outside of my field. I don't know you know, I'm not an expert on immigration policy and I'm not an expert on healthcare policy. So when they ask me to comment on things like that, I say, you know what, I'm not qualified to speak to that. And so you may maybe you should ask somebody else. Um, and yet psychologists who have never interviewed any of us, as far as I know, uh, feel qualified to talk about our states of mind. Now, they don't get to do that in court. You know, if 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 a person's on trial for their uh, for for some crime and uh, the mental state is at risk, you can't have a psychologist testify that's never spoken to the person uh, to his mental state or her mental state. That's never spoken to the person on trial. They have to actually have some some interaction before they can form an opinion. These guys have determined that we are one of five categories without ever having spoken to us. That's not just popsicality. That's malpractice. practice. That's that's malpractice. That's, that's, that's worse than if I called up a teledoc for a diagnosis. Sure. They don't get to see me, but at least I've spoken to them and, and described my symptoms. They see what we've written completely science-based. It just happens to be against a narrative that they're told because they're not qualified to, to, discuss it either they're not climate scientists that they're told is out of the mainstream that they're that they're told we're fringe and they say so what do you think of these fringe people and they give a diagnosis that's malpractice
0: yeah i will point out that uh, stefan lewandowski who is named in that article was one of the people that diagnosed you know myself and others, including Steve McIntyre, several years ago, he wrote a paper, and he got it published in a psychology journal, basically saying, climate deniers are nuts, and this is why, And, and then rattled off all of the psychological reasons. Well, that was a huge breach of professional ethics, and we got that paper pulled. We complained to the journal and said, this guy has never talked to us, Not once. How can he remote diagnosis? It is a complete breach of ethics, not only in the profession of psychology, but in the journal itself. And finally, after a lot of work and effort, we got the journal to pull that article. And yet he's still at it, Lewandowski is. They named me in this article saying some prolific contrarians and former weather forecasters, such as Anthony Watts, founder of the Skeptic blog, Watts up with that, or scientists themselves are the real problem here. Well, you know, like I said earlier, it's about truth. I mean, you have to be brave and stand up and speak truth when these kinds of things are being thrown at you, because otherwise you will just get steamrolled. And that's what I've been doing, what the Heartland Institute's been doing, and what our panel's been doing for years. We stand up against these false narratives, these outright lies, and we have to, because who else is doing it? A lot of folks get very afraid about standing up, particularly in academia. You know, we've heard backstories about in academia how, you know, there's a lot of people that agree with us, but they're afraid to stand up for fear that they're going to get hauled before some kind of a tribunal, you know, like the Spanish Inquisition or something like that. And said, you know, are you actually talking about climate not being a crisis? How dare you? It's a whole greater mentality um, that goes on in science. And it's it's tragic that science and politics is being so corrupted to to do this. Another fellow who's involved with this article is a fellow by the name of John Cook. He's from Australia. He used to be a cartoonist. That was his whole qualification. But he got started starting up this blog called Skeptical Science. And it got a lot of notice in the alarmist community. And so they said, hey, why don't you come to this university and we'll write you up a a study program and you can become a professor of climate communications. Wow. Okay. so now he's a professor of climate communications and he gets quoted in articles like this, basically saying climate skeptics are bad, climate skeptics are wrong and climate skeptics need to be suppressed and that's what happens they get a position of academia and academia and academia gets this label of being you know correct and we get squished which I don't, is just terrible
2: I, I don't remember the full story but i think he tried to sneak in uh as a journalist to one of our climate conferences a few years ago and he portrayed that's himself right. he portrayed himself as if he were representing um a legitimate he was trying news to represent outlet,
0: like the weather channel he the was, weather
2: yeah oh i'm a right. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy for the Weather Channel. I'm here. You should give me my call. Right. Oh, we, we found I, out. No, you you don't. First off, it was false representation. He didn't work for the Weather Channel. Uh, right. And, yeah, and, I actually and, spotted and him and turned him in. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, these guys, they have no qualifications to speak about uh, climate. They certainly have no no justification. Uh, it, Cook doesn't have qualifications to speak about psychology of of people. Uh, and the psychologists don't have qualification to speak about the psychology of people they've never met. I mean, it's right. not like, look, I'm not a hard person to find. Uh, NPR finds me when they want to. They interview me at length. If a psychologist wants to get into my mind and find out why I believe what I believe, besides what I clearly write about data, facts, evidence, pointing to peer reviewed literature, uh, they're welcome to call. And, uh, I'll talk to them and then they can form an opinion until then they should shut up. Uh, Wittgenstein said about those things of which we cannot speak, we should remain silent. They should remain silent until they've actually done some work.
0: Yep, That's true. And you know, We we get suppressed. We get suppressed not just by academia. We get suppressed by the corporate communications cabal out there as well. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Judith Curry coming on this program to talk about her views about, you know, why climate is such a wicked problem and why it's very uncertain to predict the future. And yet, just literally a few minutes before we went on the air, we got a notice from Google slash YouTube that says, I'm sorry, your channel has been shut down because you're nasty. You know, you said something a year ago that we didn't like. So they shut it down. Well, you know the Streisand effect. You know, the, if you've heard of this, it from years ago. Barbara Streisand had a big house along the California coast, and some guy was flying around in a helicopter or an airplane, taking pictures of it and posting it on the internet. This was Barbara Streisand's mansion. Well, she didn't like that, and so she she sued to get these pictures taken off the internet, and it had a tremendous backlash effect whereby all of a sudden the pictures she was trying to suppress were all over the Internet because everyone was interested in this story. It had completely backfired on her. And so it's, that episode was named The Streisand Effect. That's exactly what happened in the case of them trying to suppress our program with Dr. Judith Curry. That episode went viral and got more views than any of our other uh, presentations to date over 150,000 views because people were interested to find out what she had to say that was so terrible that it had to be suppressed by YouTube. It's amazing.
2: Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's actually, uh, you call it the Streisand effect. I, I, I call it the uh, gun gun store effect. Every time they talk about passing gun control laws, gun sales go through the roof. <laughs> they put more semi-automatic rifles on the streets that the lawmakers have through their attempts to ban semi-automatic rifles, than ever would have been on the streets otherwise.
0: Yep, yeah, it's uh, and, and so yet we continue to be labeled the bad people. Our views are continued to be labeled as being, um, you know, bad for the earth, bad for humanity, bad for everything, and yet we're trying to speak the truth. I think of some of the things that you know you guys have written, in particular, Linnea, some of the articles you've written and pointed out that are just so logical and straightforward. You wonder how people can't see this for themselves. Do you have any kind of an idea, Linnea, why so many people live with blinders on when it comes to basic facts about climate?
3: Well, it's kind of what we were talking about before. And I don't always blame people for not, you know, if you're not exposed to the other side of the argument, then you're not going to um, necessarily connect the dots. You might think, you know, uh, this doesn't quite make sense what they're saying on TV, but I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Um, not everybody has the time to like deeply research everything. Um, if we all did that, you know, half of our day would be spent just fact checking everything that we hear on the news, which someone's got to do. But uh, you have oh to use gosh, a little right? bit of and selectiveness. <laughs> yeah. You have to use a little bit of, um, you have to be a little bit selective with what you decide to chase down. Um I, I might have mentioned this quite a few episodes ago, but there is a um, a joke about the media where, you know, an economist is reading the newspaper and he reads the sports section and he's like, oh, okay, I understand. And then he reads the uh, business section. And he's like, these journalists don't know what they're talking about. This is nonsense. And then he reads the geopolitics section. And he goes, hmm, I'm sure this is correct. So it's kind of like, you know what you know, and sometimes you can expand it. Um, but I don't I don't blame people for not. What I do blame people for is when people say things that are patently absurd and they don't bother to check. They just kind of absorb it and say, you know, well, that is literally something that I could go outside right now and look and see that it's untrue, uh, but I'm not going to do that because it falls in line with some kind of a narrative that I already believe. So that, that kind of thing is kind of inexcusable. You know, if the, if the weatherman says, you know, it's sunny all day today and you go outside and it's overcast and you're like, but the weatherman said it was sunny. Uh, So that's what I'm going to decide to believe. Um, That kind of stuff is nonsense. Um,
0: Right. You know, when it is sunny, uh, when it's cloudy and it's supposed to be sunny, that's a failure of a computer model and in most cases. These
3: right. Right. And people look at that. You know, it, that speaking of that, a little bit off topic, but man, it cracks me up when people complain about how, you know, meteorologists don't always get it right. And how, you know, the the joke forever is that you can't trust the weather uh-huh. channel to predict anything on the like 10-day forecast or even the three-day forecast accurately. Uh, but then they say, but I believe that a climate scientist can tell me to a tenth of a degree what the temperature is going to be a hundred years from now. <laughs> and, and what no. the effects <laughs> of
2: that will be. And what the yeah. effects of that will be. Yeah. On weather we, we, events, we, right. Yeah, we can't know what the weather will be like three days from now, but we can be confident of it a hundred years from now. Um, madness. You know, uh, getting back, there, there's two things that... Um, are really interesting about the uh, the article that they talked about. But but what we're constantly up against, Anthony's up against it, is up against it, all of us at Heartland are up against it, but not just us. Uh, our, our, our colleagues, our associated think tanks, it's constantly said, you know, oh, we get all this money, we get all this money, we get all this money. Look, Heartland hasn't received any money from, uh, from, from Exxon or others in, I think, 15, 16 years now. Uh, and when they we were getting it, it was a small part of our donations. More importantly, it was given to us not to support their point of view. They came to us and gave us money because we had a point of view already that they believed in. But they stopped giving to us because it became inconvenient. Uh, because they started, I don't know if they bought into the claims, but they wanted to buy a good image, and they stopped giving to us. Yet we keep going on. Uh, now I. You know, I'm a, I'm a philosopher by training, and I constantly say, look, that you attack me on ad hominem. You don't look at my arguments. You attack my character. Uh, and, and that's an illegitimate form of argument, but it, that doesn't make it ineffective. I try not to do that. I won't say that I always succeed, but I try to avoid that. So I'm not saying that the people on the other side are bought and paid for. But as far back ago as uh, Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address, uh, everyone knows that farewell address because he warned about, he talked about the military industrial complex. And he warned of the dangers of the military industrial complex taking over the economy and becoming sort of a constant war state. Um, The second half of his speech, not many people pay attention to, Uh, but it warned about basically the science industrial complex, the science government contract. He says, look, big government is now in science big time. We're giving millions of dollars and you got to worry. He warned about this. He says, you got to worry that they will take over the agenda of science, that funding dollars will go to what the government wants funding dollars to go to. And thus the scientists will say what what the government wants them to say. And since government by and large, seeks more and more power and influence over people's lives. This is what history shows us. You don't see typically government shrinking. Uh, I'm not sure about anybody else, but I didn't need 300 new laws over my life last year and 10,000 pages of of new regulations telling me what to do. Uh, I was getting along okay. Um, But government grew and government does grow and they fund people who support the idea that government needs to grow. You don't see them funding much research that says, oh, air is getting cleaner. We don't need to do that much. We need to cut back. Uh, The same thing with climate. And so Eisenhower warned about this. If you wanna know where the big money in climate is, it's not in climate realism or climate skepticism. It's in climate alarm. That's where the billions, hundreds of millions of dollars go. That's what the government is funding. Uh, you go to the universities, it's not the skeptical scientists who are getting the funding. It is the, the I won't say the bought and paid for scientists. It's the scientists who understand what it takes to bring in big dollars from the government. And that means painting an alarming picture.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, Deep Throat, back in uh, the Watergate era, who said, follow the money, he was very prescient. He was way ahead of his time. I mean, literally... That's what this is all about. Just look at the billions and billions of dollars that are going into climate research and political climate agendas and NGOs that are funded uh, entirely to you know, save the planet and all this other rubbish and compare that to the hittance that we get. I mean, you can go on our website at heartland.org and look at how much we have in our budget. You can look at you know, all of that and, and compare that. To the amount of money that's being thrown at the climate change agenda out there it's it just amazing so one of the things that's happened uh since we got suppressed by google and youtube over uh, our dr judith curry episode is that we're now getting uh, much more freedom um because some people there realized uh in the uh in the youtube world hey wait a minute you know we're really screwing these guys over. And so we got some things that are, that have been rescinded that had been uh, restricted to us before. You know, we used to not be able to do things called super chats and we used to not be able to um, monetize our channel and other things. Well, now all of a sudden after they they boneheadedly suppressed us and got taken to the cleaners for it, those things have been opened up now, right?
2: Well, do you think – let me ask. You said you think – You implied that they felt like, oh, gosh, we realized we suddenly realized we screwed them over. Or do you think what it was is they realized they screwed themselves over? (laughs) You know, YouTube says, well, we can have people watch this here or we can have them watch it someplace else. And they're going to watch it. And they did watch it, you know, by the by the hundreds of thousands or, you know, I don't know how many what the actual final numbers were. But like you said, our largest broadcast ever wasn't on YouTube. Uh, yeah, you yep. know, not not yeah. really uh, time.
0: I want to happy introduce day. Andy Singer, who's our producer. He runs all of the switches in the background. He's that, he's been um, managing our YouTube channel for quite a long time. Andy, kind of give us the synopsis I here. What happened? I, I,
1: I used to host this show a little bit before before you right. took over, which, which we're all happy for. But uh, yeah, so so I can explain the whole YouTube censoring us and us getting out of the, the basement. So the Judith Curry episode, which got our channel pulled for two weeks. Uh, was labeled as misinformation from youtube we previously had one other misinformation strike i believe it was related to uh, either vaccines or election content i'm not going to comment on what we said but uh so you we attempted to monetize our channel in the past and youtube labeled us as a and I, i'm fully serious here a dangerous channel so we weren't actually able to monetize or use certain features that all of the channels were able to use now, the Judith Curry thing ended up being a massive benefit to us because it was insane. They banned us for a video two years ago where we, we literally verbatim read one of Trump's tweets to report on it, which you can't argue that's taking a stance. We're, we're reading a tweet from the president of the United States. So we reached out to YouTube and they had no choice but to back down uh, on the misinformation claims. And because of that, we were able to fight back against the labeling of the dangerous channel, become monetized, and then introduce all these new features, which we've wanted to introduce for over a year now. So, all right, I'll go back into my producer hole, but that's, that's the story of why Judith Curry ended up being a viral video for us and why we now have all these features. <laughs> all right, I'm
0: out. Yep. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I feel dangerous.
3: <laughs> really dangerous.
0: Yes, the dangerous trio. We've discussed facts that are not that are not to be spoken. You know, it's like uh, it's like from um, Harry Potter. You know, that which shall not be named. Anyway, that's what we do here. We talk facts. That we talk facts that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about. That Al Gore doesn't want to talk about. That climate alarmists don't want to talk about. We do that every day. We slice and dice um, lies and exaggerations on climaterealism.com. If you haven't. Taken a look at that website yet, please do. Climaterealism.com. We eviscerate, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and various other newspapers and publication outlets around the world on a regular basis by simply pointing out, hey, you didn't talk about this fact. And the fact that you didn't talk about this fact completely negates your entire article. It's it's like they don't even want to try to do research. They just want to publish the narrative. It's really ugly.
2: Any danger that I pose is to to animals that I may hunt or mirrors and camera lenses, I suspect.
0: Yeah. So we got a question here. Will Happer talks about CO2 effect being logarithmic. Could you explain this with CO2 being already saturated in the atmosphere? I I can take that on because um, I I have a good analogy that I've been using for years to help people understand this. So let's say you're at a restaurant and you get a bowl of soup served to you all right so you taste the soup and you think yeah it's kind of bland so you put some salt in the soup to spice it up a little bit taste it again and you think eh, need some more salt so now you put more salt into it and you taste it and all of a sudden Ugh, it's too salty Well, no matter how much more salt you add, it's still going to be too salty. And that's the way CO2 acts in the atmosphere. The first little bit of salt or CO2 actually makes the biggest change. You add a little more and it makes more of a change. But once you get past a certain point where it's saturated, our taste buds response to the salt is saturated. It's the same way with CO2. At a certain point where we get so much CO2 in the atmosphere, its response in the atmosphere to temperature is saturated and we don't get any more effect. And so it's this logarithmic curve where we're at the flat top of it and it's not gonna get any work. We're not gonna get much more heating because we're already, the effect of CO2 in the atmosphere is already saturated. But the problem is is that the media and climate alarmists portray it as a linear effect, as if it has no end. And so as a result, we get crazy things like the climate RCP 8.5 model that suggest that the future is gonna be hellishly hot. Well, that was basically proven a couple of years ago that it's impossible. We burned all the fossil fuels on the planet and threw all that CO2 into the atmosphere. That model couldn't happen. It was completely impossible. So now it's not being used anymore by science, but the media still references it as the doomsday scenario because you know doom sells, just like the old bleed it leaves kind of thing in TV news. Do we have any more questions? Linnea, that's for you.
3: Sure. Um, Is it merely a function of business survival or science-driven belief in the narrative? It's probably both. Um, I would say that a majority of people probably actually believe that um, CO2 has at least a, a, or at least, let's, let me correct that, that human additions of CO2 to the atmosphere causes some kind of degree of warming. I think that most people probably really do think that that's the case. And to different degrees, I mean, I don't see that theory as totally unacceptable, but it's obviously not the control knob. Um, The function of business survival element is a huge part of it, though, because there are um, very very, very good incentives for investing in green energy. And also for kind of, um, for the bigger companies, there's a pretty good financial incentive to encourage the creation of new um, regulations on like pipeline infrastructure emissions and um, emissions from producing and drilling for oil. Because as you drill, if you're not drilling in a closed system, you are going to get uh, some deep earth carbon dioxide, methane, uh, H2S, all sorts of stuff coming up. Um, And it's easier for a really big company like BP or Exxon to pay for the technology that it takes to mitigate those kinds of emissions. It's not so easy for the, you know, dozens of mom and pop oil companies that are out in like Odessa and, um, other major oil producing regions. It's not so easy for them to keep up with those kind of regulations. So it's kind of a anti-competitive, um, yeah, strategy.
2: Well, like you say, it's a dual purpose. Uh, they, they are, they are in a sense, both the bootleggers and the Baptist. Uh, they, uh, they are saying, oh yeah, we're, we're all on climate too. It's, it's a, it's a bad thing. And we're trying to transition away from it. In the meantime, they're putting their competitors out of business. Their reserves go up in price and value. Uh, so they sell it at higher prices. Um, you know, they, they, they are piling on and uh, and it's a good marketing ploy. Right. You know, Exxon didn't for years have a tiger in its tank and say they were funding all this endangered species work because they were worried about their bottom line. They were I mean, because because they weren't worried about their bottom line. They were. They saw this as a way of saying we're green, too.
3: (laughs) You know, plus, you know, and the tax, the tax benefits from pushing the green stuff is pretty substantial. You have, you know, uh, Biden was just complaining recently about uh, the profits that oil companies made last year. And, um, it's, it's funny though, because so many of those companies, companies like BP and stuff get, they get money from the, um, what is it called? Sterling, I'm blanking on the name of the, uh,
2: You're about renewable the programs, production, uh, uh, tax credit? Yeah.
3: yeah, from one yes, of the renewables 42. tax credit, yep. they get money from that. So <laughs> it's kind of like, they, and they get you know, money they
2: for get, research, they get money for yeah. research, uh, from the government into research, into various, um, uh, low carbon technologies, carbon capture and storage, stuff, stuff like that.
3: The so, so the fact money that they're not the paying their so-called fair share in taxes is just a factor of well, then don't give out this this uh, renewable production tax credit because they're taking advantage of it by you know investing heavily in offshore wind. Um,
2: Let's go back though to the science part of that because you said you said that they that, you know they probably believe the science. We can all believe. That additional CO two until the full saturation has some impact on uh, temperatures, but there is no evidence whatsoever that there's some magic tipping point. One point five degrees and two degrees are both made up, whole cloth. What do we think it was? It was. What do you think would be bad? One point five. Okay, we'll all agree on 1.5. Beyond that, it's dangerous. Well, why does 1.5 become dangerous? They can't explain that except by pointing to climate models and pointing to the most extreme version of climate models, which might say there's some kind of tipping point. But they can't point to data or facts. And even the climate models, you know, if you throw out the extreme, like I said, there's no magic, there's no reason that 1.5 was settled on magically or two point it it, it was magical it was just it was it was let's throw something out 1.5 sounds like pretty good to me because that we means we've really got to get hard and forcing them to restrain emissions because we're going to reach 1.5 or 0.2 or two because we're going to reach two so let's stop them from reaching two let's really put the screws to them make people live more simply make them live Uh, you know, go back to the Pleistocene, go back to the 1820s levels of emissions. Uh, Let's get governments on board to do that. And, uh, you know, it's not going to, the truth is there's no tipping point. 1.5 is not some kind of uh, uh, data-driven, evidence-driven number. Neither is two because there's no evidence that there's a tipping point beyond which humans can't uh, and, and the environment can't, not just survive, but thrive. We have shown ourselves very, very adaptable. People historically, generally, don't retire to Fargo, North Dakota, or Minnesota. They move south where it's much hotter. And I'm not talking too much hotter. Thank you.
0: And I want to point out, Sterling, that we've already hit the 1.5 degree C limit. If you go and look at data from the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature data set called BEST, and you look at the the data that they have back in 1850, you'll see that we've already seen 1.5 C of warming between then and now. And where's the catastrophe? Well, it isn't there. And as we regularly point out at Climate at a Glance, Dot com, you'll find that the hurricanes are not getting worse, tornadoes are not getting worse, thunderstorms are not getting worse, flooding's not getting worse. None of these things that they had predicted as catastrophes due to, you know, this increased temperature have happened. They're just not happening. But they still tell you in the media on a daily basis, if we don't do something, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Doom is on the horizon. And it never happens. The doom never happens when it comes to climate. And virtually every prediction related to ecology or climate done over the last 50 years has not come true, particularly some of the predictions about population. Paul Eric and his population bomb, you know, that was one of the biggest, most ridiculous presentations of a a forecast that fell flat on its face. And yet that guy is still on national television. He was on 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago saying, doom, doom, it's going to happen. Well, pardon me, but he's full of crap.
2: A man man who's made hundreds of predictions over the years in very public forums and has never as far as I can determine been right once. But he's still invited to speak.
3: That question that was just up about optimum earth temperature is interesting, though, because I and maybe this is just because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not a planetary earth scientist, anything like that. I think personally that the idea of an optimum average earth temperature for the entire planet, just from an engineer's perspective, seems kind of silly because, you know, you can achieve the same average with very different um, temperature variables. Like you could have some pretty extreme uh, temperatures on to the hot side and to the cold side that come to the same average as a relatively moderate, um, temperature range. Um, I think that it's not so much that there's an optimum earth temperature. There might be optimum ranges for particular biomes, but I wouldn't say that there's an optimum earth temperature in general. Um, And that's, and that's assuming that nothing changes, right? Like if we want, the earth to be static and we don't want any biomes to change ever again you know like the the western plains cannot become a a interior a, a inside of the continent sea again uh none of that can happen then maybe you know you aggressively try to manage a certain temperature somehow i don't know how you would do that but um I, I don't think that there's such thing as an optimum Earth temperature. There might be a range depending on where you are, but there's no single number.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you'd have to have a God's eye point of view to know what the optimum was. And even then, it would be the optimum in relation to what. Uh, today's temperature is not probably optimum for dinosaurs. You know, w- would they survive today if they were if they hadn't gone extinct due to, a you know, a, a, an asteroid strike? Uh, probably, probably they wouldn't do that well. Contrary to uh, to uh, uh, the movies uh, portrayals, they, they'd have plenty to eat, but I'm not sure the temperatures will be that good for them. Um, the the, the you, like you say the the optimum is f- in relation to what, and it won't be a specific number. It will be a range in spe- you know, in, in relation to what. So. Uh, We can say something probably about the optimum temperature for an old growth forest made up of Sitka, spruce, and redwoods. Uh, We can say what the optimum temperature is probably a range of temperatures for uh, the the heartland in uh, the middle Midwest for the growing seasons. Uh, It would probably be the same optimum temperature in Siberia, which they don't have yet. And and they'd like to have more warming.
0: Temperature in Siberia is above freezing. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So (laughs) there is no single temperature. And even if there were a temperature, it would be a range. And in relation to other factors desired in states.
0: Let's move on to the next question. Ray W. asks, what are your thoughts on the next glaciation? There are so many different cycles. Well, there's the Milankovitch cycle, there's uh, the Gleisberg cycle. There's all kinds of different cycles, sun cycles, polar cycles, um, you know, wobble cycles, you know, the Earth's um, all of these factor. and here's and, and this is an interesting point. There's so many different cycles out there. it It speaks to the complexity of climate. And this is what Dr. Judith Curry has been saying for years. Climate is so complex it's extremely hard to predict with any accuracy into the future because there's all these different factors. You know, carbon dioxide is not the universal control knob for climate of the planet. Yes, it has a role, but so does sunlight, the wobble of the Earth, um, plankton in the ocean, changing the albedo, uh, all kinds of different things. So regarding glaciation, yes, we'll probably have another one. Will it be mitigated by carbon dioxide? Possibly, maybe less bad and it may squish Montreal, but not New York this time. Who knows? Point is that the Earth's gonna do what it's gonna do and the energies involved and the physics involved on the large scale in the solar system and on Earth are much larger than anything that we can muster with a you know, half a watt to a watt or so of solar change due to carbon dioxide.
3: Yeah. And we've reached yeah. one of those, un- those moments. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, well, <laughs> what I was going to say was, um, you know, if you look at what we currently believe and what we currently have based on proxy data on and uh, geologic history data, that it seems like the overall trend of Earth glaciation cycles is that they are becoming more frequent uh, with less of a break in between. Um, but... Again, this is based on data that we don't have very great resolution for, you know, this is in on the scale of, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands up to millions of years. So it's it's not like we can say, you know, oh, well, I think, you know, if you factor in all of these different cycles that, you know, the Earth is going to be in a glacial period 20,000 years from now Uh, might be the case might not be the case. I don't like trying to prognosticate because I've seen so many (laughs) catastrophic failures in this industry on that, Uh, especially from the alarmist side, I would say. Um, I I hesitate to say anything like that because I just don't think that we have enough data to be sure.
0: One of the questions that was up here just a moment ago was about tipping points. And um, I want to say Throughout Earth's history, there has never been a tipping point to the, well, I shouldn't say that exactly. There's not been a warm tipping point where the Earth's gone into runaway greenhouse effect and everything roasted. That has never happened. We have seen periods of the past in the far past where carbon dioxide has been greater than it is today uh, by an order of magnitude or more, but the Earth didn't go into a runaway greenhouse effect like Venus. Um, You know, the title of our our show here today is, is uh, you know, Climate Incorporated Billions and Billions, and I want to speak to where that came from. That's from Dr. Carl Sagan, who ran Cosmos, the TV show on PBS in the 1980s, and he always say billions and billions, you know, and he got you know, that catchphrase become his label. But the point is that uh, he started the whole climate thing. He started talking to Dr. James Hansen at NASA Gifts back in the uh, early 70s uh, about Venus. You know, they put out the Mariner probes to Venus to measure the atmospheric content. And they discovered, you know, tremendous pressure, tremendous temperature, 600 degrees, you know, on the surface of Venus. And they began to get worried that Earth could run into a runaway uh, greenhouse effect like Venus has. Well, it's just not possible. We don't have the same kind of of atmospheric contents that venus has we don't have the amount of carbon dioxide and we could never get there so we're not ever going to get into a runaway tipping point associated with carbon dioxide like's happened on venus we have had tipping points with glaciation however where you know the wobble of the earth changes the insulation coming into the poles changes and so as a result we get more accumulation of snow and ice over a period of time and that grows until the wobble changes or something else changes in the planetary system so, yes, there are tipping points towards cold, but there have not been any tipping points towards runaway greenhouse effect.
2: So, Jim, has so, uh, a yeah, and I'm not sure um, CO2 has been much higher in the past. I'm not sure it's been much higher during past ice ages. You know, it, it, in geologic history, it's not. In, in, in geologic history, uh, glaciations even are relatively recent. Uh, for for the first few billion years, I don't believe we had cycles of ice ages and things like that. When we had Pangea, the one supercontinent, and when the dinosaurs were around, certainly CO2 was much higher than today. Temperatures were much higher than today. But that was long. That was actually also before uh, we had these rec- periodic glaciation cycles. So I'm not sure. I, I I I don't. I haven't seen the data. But at least for the past few glaciation cycles. CO2 certainly hasn't exceeded what it is right now.
0: Now, I I don't know the answer to that question either exactly, but based on what I know about CO2 in the oceans, the oceans absorb more CO2 when it's colder. The solubility of carbon dioxide in colder water is greater. This is why, you know, if you open up a soda pop that's been in the fridge, it doesn't fizz much. But if you open up a soda pop that's been sitting out in the sun, and that's because the CO2 is not soluble in the hot water or warm water, and it wants to come right out of it immediately. And that's one of the drivers that a lot of folks really don't know about. As the planet warms naturally, we're going to get more CO2 coming out of the oceans. It's, it's not going to stay dissolved because warmer water can't hold as much CO2, so it's going to bubble up and out. And that's been happening. And it's one of the things that a lot of folks in the media and in science don't want to talk about they don't want to talk about the natural drivers of, and, of uh, CO2. And,
2: and what we can say about history, uh, based on the limited proxy data we have, and of course Linnea pointed out quite rightly that the uh, resolution of a lot of this proxy data is, uh, is very limited. You know, we, we, we have a few loca- some evidence from a few locations around the globe, but it's still, you know, it's not like we're there with cameras and, and thermometers measuring things. Um what we can say based on the proxy data we have is that there have been times in the past when CO2 levels have been much much higher today but the earth has been cooler or about the same and that and there have also been times when the CO2 levels have been lower than today and the global average temperature based on the proxy data was warmer than it is at present and we can say during the past few glaciation cycles the evidence suggests that the warming preceded the rise in CO2 by hundreds to a couple of thousand years consistently during the glaciation. So, um, you know, I, I think that's the most we can say.
0: Yep. And uh, I want to wrap up the show at this point. Uh, We've answered a lot of different questions. And, you know, one of the things that's different about this show, at least on the background side, not on the front side that you see here, has been the fact that we've had the ability to do the super chat thing, thanks to the uh, suppression that we got a couple of weeks ago where they lifted all these things. But now people can pay for us to answer questions. And we raised a huge amount of money. And for those of you that are tracking money to these climate deniers, get this. We earn $70 on this show. $70. Just think of the damage we could do with that.
2: Bonuses anyway. for everyone.
0: <laughs> anyway, thank you, Sterling. Thank you, Linnea, for being with us today. And thank you, our viewers, for tuning in every week. I want to remind you to visit our websites at climaterealism.com and at climateataglance.com for factual-based reporting on climate without the hype. And uh, we appreciate you joining us today. I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute, thanking you again and wishing you all a good day.